0: family. We're uh, members at Trinity Church Colonel Light Garden, so it's great to, to be with you. It feels like, you know, obviously we are part of the same network, so it just feels like that we're kind of sister churches. And so kind of, not that I'm the Apostle Paul or anything like that, but it kind of feels that sort of connection of being able to, to visit with you and to, and to bring you greetings uh, and encouragement in God's Word. Uh, so let me. Uh, um, and I thank Julie for reading to us. And so let me just invite you to keep your Bibles open, or uh, whatever your favorite Bible app is, uh, to Psalm 62, as we consider uh, consider the psalm and the way God would have us to respond to His Word this morning. So, uh, in 2011, uh, Steve Jobs, founder or stealer of apple i don't know how, how where we stand on that but anyway uh, steve jobs died from pancreatic cancer uh, and he's proven to be one of the most uh, profound influences of our time i say that very cognizant of that i'm preaching from an apple ipad and i have a iphone in my pocket um, and it has uh, been a huge blessing to us as a family as we've been able to communicate with our families so he's obviously very influential um His form of pancreatic cancer, I've read, was quite treatable. Uh, And in 2003, his tumors were discovered. And it said that he delayed uh, treatment, delayed professional medical treatment for nine months while he experimented with uh, alternative treatments such as a vegan diet, acupuncture, and different juices. So Jobs placed a great trust in in the alternative treatments in order to cure him from his cancer. And they ultimately failed him. Uh, In 2004, when he finally elected to have surgery, by that time it was too late. The cancer had spread, and though the surgery was temporarily successful, it gave him a a few more years to live. Uh, He eventually relapsed and died. Uh, And it's concluded by most doctors that if he would have had surgery right away when it was recommended to him, uh, he would have lived. And so jobs placed an enormous amount of trust in alternative methods. Uh, I don't see any other way to kind of see that. Uh, I can't imagine you delaying surgery so long unless you actually really trusted them and you had confidence in them. But eventually, uh, as Jobs did, he hit a threshold where his trust in these methods could no longer be sustained. They no longer uh, could kind of bear the brunt of the trust. And so he had to actually explore other options. And so the object of his confidence failed. Okay? And so as Christians, our, our confession is that the Lord Jesus himself is our hope. He is the foundation and the whole of our trust. And so as we wait on him, uh, the fullness of our trust, we wait in the fullness of his kingdom to appear. However, even as Christians, if we're honest, uh, we frequently shift the object of our trust. We confess that Jesus is our trust, but the actual reality of our trust is um, frequently revealed to be somewhere else. So what actually makes us feel secure is that job that we desire, the job that we hold, the spouse that we pursue, the popularity that we desire in our schools, The number sign after the dollar sign. So Psalm 62 actually is a psalm of trust and confidence. It's a psalm that has an overall theme of trusting in God, especially in the extreme difficulties of life. Psalm 62, I hope, uh, will encourage us to trust in the Lord as our refuge, as our hope, especially in the most dire of circumstances. So the first point uh, that I want to look at is in verses one to two, is that our confidence that we should be confident in the Lord alone. So if you look at Psalm sixty-two, uh, you know, Psalm David begins in verses one to two by declaring that our only security, our only confidence, should be should come from God alone. And so David begins by giving us a picture, an image of what confidence in God looks like. If you look at verses one to two of chapter 62 truly my soul finds rest in god my salvation comes from him truly he is my rock and my salvation he is my fortress i shall never be shaken so david declares that in god alone he waits or he rests and he will never be shaken a declaration to never be shaken so what does trust look like? Well, according to David, in this image, it looks like rest. It's calmness in the storm. Instead of the need to act, it is actually to wait. Instead, we rest securely in God in the waiting. Now, the ability to rest, to be calm and not be shaken in the midst of adversity is is actually really difficult. Uh, I'm sure that you've, if you're like me and you enjoy sporting events and uh, grand finals, Super Bowls, all those sorts of things, you see certain players that exhibit a coolness about them when the pressure's on. They actually look quite bored. Sometimes they talk about them having ice water in their veins sort of thing. It's just, you know, in the anxiety, you can't imagine how calm they can be, but they just look restful. I think your ability to rest, my ability, our ability to rest in adversity corresponds to the object of your confidence. When you're confident in the object, you can rest. And so David here is only at rest through the turbulence of life because he is confident of knowing where his salvation comes from. It comes from God. David declares, after all, my salvation comes from him. And he is my rock. He's my salvation. So the image of a rock of salvation is one of protection. So in both of these images, there is security and stability in the face of adversity. Now, David's confidence in the Lord is not, at, you know, it's not in a vacuum. It's not abstract. Rather, it arises, of course, in his history with the Lord. The Lord has shown him that he that he is his salvation. You know, some of David's lives are really well known to us. We think about David's history with the Lord, with Goliath rescuing him from the big giant. We think about the constant turmoil David had with Saul. Or even his son, Absalom. So David's declaration of trust in the Lord is one that is earned and understood through his history with the Lord. But David's declaration of trust is one that I think Christians that we think that we theoretically know and agree with, we would say, yes, that's right. Of course, our trust is in the Lord. But the challenges, of course, is when our declaration of um, of finding absolute absolute security is challenged. When actually adversity hits us, that is when our trust is revealed. And so in verses three to four, David is going to show us. That we need to be ready to struggle. We need to be ready to struggle in our confidence. So, in verses three to four, this next section, that David isn't making this declaration about God as his salvation, his rock, his fortress in a vacuum or when things are all cheery. No, it's taking place in the difficulty of opposition. And so, the struggle, and so the Christian life likewise must be ready to struggle. Because the struggles will reveal whether the Lord truly is our competence. And so in verse 3, it reveals that David is being attacked. And in verse 4, that this group of people seek to remove him from his position. Most likely his position as Israel's king. So what do we have? We have a group of people who are targeting the Davidic king in order to remove him from leading God's kingdom. And so verse 3 tells us that we must be ready to endure the struggle. David rhetorically asks here uh, of those who've surrounded him, who have assaulted him, how long will you assault me? Now, it's difficult to know when this psalm might relate to David's life. Uh, David is one who is no stranger to long-term opposition. Uh, maybe many of you here have, have been dealing with long term opposition, long term struggles. David knew this. You know how long he was on the run from King Saul? Twelve years. Twelve years. He was anointed as a king in his teens, and 12 years he's on the run. You know, if anybody deserves long service leave, it's David. He knew what long term opposition meant. And it's difficult. It wears you down and it zaps your strength. That's why it's actually a military strategy is not to kind of have an all on assault, but you just slowly wear people down. And you wonder how long it can last. How long can I last in this strength? And so and one of the you know, the result is that it zaps you, it zaps your strength, which is exactly what David feels. The duration of his opposition has left him weak. He describes himself like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. He's like an unsound structure. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. You're just kind of going through something and you kind of you're you're just are just going about your day. But you feel like if somebody just says the wrong thing to me, I might just crumble. We get that. All it takes is that slightest of shove, that slightest of looks to fall. And so not only do we have to be ready for the, the strength to be zapped, we also have to be ready for those who will delight in falsehood. So the opposition that David feels are those who seek to dethrone him. Um, this picture of the wicked who surround the Davidic king in order to overthrow him is very similar to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is one of those very classic psalms about the Lord and his Messiah and that there are nations and kings who will oppose him. This is similar, except for instead of it being the wicked of kings and nations attacking David, we see that it is from the inside. It is an internal struggle. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And this is kind of, it's a tricky sort when you're being opposed from the inside. They don't come, and this group here doesn't come straight on rather they have a whisper campaign if you notice their strategy is to fight with words and through falsehoods and worse of all they take pleasure in it they delight in it and so the opposition here for david is hypocrisy of lies people who are vocal in their praise but inwardly they curse um, you know sometimes you you lead a bible study and The outward praise. Oh, what a great Bible study. But inwardly it is. Oh, did you see how angry she got when that question? Maybe she has an anger problem. Outward compliment. Outward praise. Inward cursing. It reveals where their hearts are. And so we must be ready for opposition that comes from the inside. And so what does David do? He, in verses five to nine, he seeks to strengthen his confidence in the Lord and to encourage one another. Okay, so such experiences of opposition and attack is disorienting. Okay, they destabilize you. They challenge you where your trust lies. They reveal where your hope is. And they might even tempt you when you're being attacked. They might tempt you to look for a higher rock or a more secure salvation, what you think. And so for David here, we see that the turmoil prompts him to strengthen himself, to strengthen his confidence in the Lord, uh, and then to turn to the people of God who are with him and exhort them to also strengthen their trust. So look at verses five to seven here, where he strengthens himself. David shows us that we must exhort ourselves to hope in God. So there's going to be times, friends, where we're going to have to actually speak to ourselves. Okay, in these verses, David reiterates what he states in verses one to two. Okay, so verses five to seven sound a lot like verses one to two, but there's one significant change in verse five. David has changed from declaring that God is his salvation, his trust, to now commanding himself to do so. So look at verse five, chapter 62. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. I'm deeply encouraged by just seeing the way David does this here is he commands himself. It's as if David realizes there's a temptation to look for security elsewhere due to the attacks on him. And instead of giving into the temptations to find salvation elsewhere, he commands himself to wait and to rest because he knows in his heart, that hope only comes from God. And so as David exhorts himself. He again reminds himself of the attributes of God. Where his confidence is. So find hope in God. Remember he is a rock. He is a salvation. He is a fortress. Therefore I will not be shaken. And look at verse 7. My salvation and honor depend on God. He is a, my mighty rock my refuge, your salvation, your dignity, your value rests on God and nowhere else. And so the adversity that you face, that I face, is going to reveal where our security is, where our real trust is. You know, because it's very common, but you know, we, we say that we trust in the Lord with our mouths, but when job loss comes, we actually, it's revealed that our Trust was actually in the identity that that job gave us in the eyes of our peers or in the eyes of our family or parents. We say that the Lord is our refuge and that he's the only one that matters for my approval until there's a less than stellar performance at work and you get a great amount of criticism revealing that your security was in what people think of you. I feel this as a lecture. the lecture doesn't go well. I realize oh. I'm dismayed by that. I realize, oh, it just reveals where my heart is, actually. So David knows the temptation, and he encourages us to strengthen our trust in the Lord by reminding ourselves that he is our hope. He is our protector and savior, and in him rests our value and our dignity. And so verse 8, not only, so David commands himself, and then as Israel's king, he commands the people of God. He To exhort one another in hope of God. And so just as David does this. He exhorts God's people to find their trust in verse eight. Okay, because these attacks on him don't just affect him. They affect all of God's people. They affect all he leads. And likewise, when we are attacked, it doesn't just affect you. It affects those you minister to your family, your friends. And so David gives two commands to the people of God. First, trust him at all times. So David says here is that in every circumstance, God can be trusted. So we're not to pick and choose the situations and circumstances that God can provide our security. Trust him at all times. And the second command is pour out your heart to him. We have a God who listens so just as you and I can wait and rest in silence for God, you and I can also pour out our heart to him. This is I think what the apostle Paul gets at in that in the letter to the church at Philippi in Philippians where he says cast upon him all your anxieties. We can do so because actually God is a listening God. And so we can trust him at all times. We can pour out our heart to him in prayer because God is our refuge, he is our salvation. He is our protector. So encouraging God's people in the midst of your own adversity is a great challenge, isn't it? To continue to encourage one another when we are the ones feeling under attack. But it's also a great witness and a great encouragement to the people of God when they see you doing so. And so, friends, trust in the Lord at all times. And know that you can pour your heart out to him. And let me encourage you in those midst of the turmoil, the frustrations to encourage one another. Finally, in verses nine to 12, we must trust in the message of God's power and his love. Okay, so in the last section of the psalm, verses nine to 12, we see uh, that David anticipates that trusting in the Lord during opposition will be difficult for God's people. And that there, there are two temptations that we might run to. And so David wants to cut off these two temptations that, that are very uh, applicable to us today. The temptations of power and of money and of finding our security in them. So verses 9 to 10, don't trust in power and riches. Okay, so no, David knows that trusting at all times is difficult and challenging. And that the significant idols of the heart are power and wealth. So if you look at verse 10. Don't trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Now, I I would hope that Trinity Brighton, uh, that most of us aren't uh, explicitly motivated by security and extortion and robbery. Uh, I'd be questioning Cameron significantly. Yeah, I know. Yeah, But both are related to seeking power and seeking wealth from others. Now, is there any other security that the human nature desires more? Maybe there are, but it seems to be these are near the top of the list. They are strong forms of security. Because when you're powerful, you can exert your influence over any situation. If you have the power, you can bend people to your will. You find security in that. And when you're wealthy, you can buy your way out of difficult situations, or at least buy, you know, you can avoid certain difficulties. And so you can have a a sense of false security because of what your bank account holds. So David's warning against these temptations, besides their obvious sins of robbery and extortion, is because they actually won't bring you real hope or security. We think they do. But they are false hopes. They bring, a, they, they bring hope and security as temporary as people are temporary. They have no substantive way of providing real salvation. So if you look at verse 9, David describes people as a breath. Just as a breath comes in and out, it's gone. Finding security and power and wealth is foolish because people themselves are here today and gone tomorrow. So though you might be tempted to have great hope in seeking and obtaining power and wealth, the reality is that life is just a breath, which proves that power and wealth are no things to find refuge in. So David says in verse 9, those who are lowborn or highborn or temporary, blue collar, white collar, working class, elite class, they all go together. And so there is nothing in them that we should find real substantive hope and confidence. Now, there's a strong possibility that this little section of this psalm was the influence of Jesus' parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. If you remember that parable where he talks about a person who puts his trust in his money, he works hard to store up all this wealth, but the thing that it can't protect him from is death. So instead of finding satisfaction and refuge in power and wealth, verses 11 and 12, we should instead trust in God's power and his steadfast love, his unfailing love. So instead of trusting in that, in the temporary security of power and riches, David encourages us to trust in the testimony of God's power and his unfailing love. Look at verses 11 and 12. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. So these two attributes, these two attributes of God, provide really great comfort and confidence to us as believers. Power belongs to God, power is not controlled by the elite or the influencers. I say influencers because apparently there's this term now social influencers and it just seems crazy to me. But anyway, no power belongs to God who has created all things and is the one who has placed those in power where they are. We believe in God's sovereignty. And not only is God the one who is truly power in verse 12, David notes as well that unfailing love belongs to him. So. It is his covenantal love, God in, in his love, in his steadfast, he is steadfast and faithful. And it's God's love revealed to us in Christ. And so these two attributes, God's power and his love are so vital for the Christian life and for our trust and confidence in him. His power affirms that he is the one who is truly in charge, not the chaos that we feel around us, not the circumstances that we feel we're in. It means that the situation that you and I find ourselves in, no matter what, you know, what era of life, school, uni, work, retirement. It means that the situation we find ourselves in has not taken God, God off guard. He knows. And his steadfast love shows that God is not abusive in his power. And it means that his disposition towards us in Christ is love. We can depend on his love. We can depend on his faithfulness. So the fact that God is powerful and steadfast in his love means that he will also pay out, it means that he will also judge according to the deeds of each of us. God in his power and his love means to the righteous. Both the righteous and the wicked will receive their justice. Our God is a just God. And it serves to warn against finding security and ill-gotten gain. Because the Lord will bring justice according to the deeds of each of us. This is a verse that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans chapter 2 to speak about that God will render each according to their works. Now, as Christian, I mean, that's daunting, actually, right? If we're really kind of have a real understanding of our own hearts. But as Christians, we can actually rejoice in this truth because God, by his spirit, is sanctifying his people. He is sanctifying people into the image of Christ in order that you and I might do the works that God has created us to do. Because we are in Christ, we... We are being saved by his works. And so we can trust in these circumstances because our God is powerful and faithful in love to those who are in Christ. And so, friends, let me just uh, wrap things up from the psalm. We're promised in this life that suffering will come because of Christ's own sufferings. And so if, if we have been united to him, we're also united to him in his suffering. It's something we can't get around. Something that is promised to us. And so as we wait for the consummation of his return, we wait for Christ's return. Our lives should be marked as lives living in restful confidence. Not only in, the, in that the final judgment will and return will happen, but also in the day-to-day worries. We can find rest in them. Now you might be sitting here and, you, and today you just find this to be Incredulous because of your own circumstances maybe you want this confidence but you find it actually impossible for your heart to kind of get in line with your mind on this let me say that this is uh, something that we work towards and it's not something that is achieved right you know it seems to be a, a moment by moment kind of thing whether our hearts and our minds kind of confess this confidence but let me say that we never do this apart from God. It is God's grace that grows us in this confidence and in this trust. And so if you find it, if you're in a, just a situation right now that you just find this impossible. Let me just uh, leave you with Jesus's promise in Matthew 11:28: Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And if you find it to be a very difficult time to trust and to believe in these words, let me invite you to talk to your pastors, talk to your small group leaders, talk to somebody. And so, friends, in Christ alone, rest. Trust him at all times for all power and and unfailing love belong to him. And in his abundant grace, he calls for us to come and he will give us rest. And so may the Lord grant us grace as we seek to trust him at all times and in all circumstances. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. God, I pray uh, that in the difficulties of life in the frustrations and in the struggles, Uh, That we would be confident in our trust of you, God, that you would uh, that you would keep us from temptations of seeking salvation and confidence elsewhere, but that you would renew our trust in you because of your power and because of your love. And so we ask by your Holy Spirit to continue to sanctify us uh, into the image of Christ and that you will provide us the rest that we need in the labor. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.